0: Index investing or passive investing has grown more popular with investors. Even Warren Buffett has the benefits of owning an entire index like the S&P 500 over the long term. An example of an index tracking ETF is BMO's S&P 500 Index ETF. It's the largest ETF in Canada that tracks this well-recognized and popular index. It provides exposure to the returns of the market cap weighted S&P 500 Index at a low cost, the management fee of just 0.08%. This broad market ETF makes for an efficient building block in a portfolio, saving you time and effort while mitigating single stock risk. If you're looking for exposure to the largest and most liquid public companies in the United States, this ETF delivers an easy to use solution and instant diversification. Commissions and management fees and expenses all may be associated with investments in exchange traded funds, Please read the ETF facts or prospectus of the BMO ETFs before investing. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty
1: secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back or
2: have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin.
3: Hey, there's a bubble.
0: Welcome back, Lunia our episode 115. As always, joined by the three amigos. We got Keith Dicker, Ice Cap, Asset Management, Rich Diaz, PGM. PGM. Yeah, we got it right. Um, what, what's going on? Keith, look at that, look at that Christmas sweater.
2: Yeah, I know it's my ugly Christmas sweater. So if you're listening, I'm wearing my ugly Christmas sweater, which is the San Francisco 49ers uh you know, team ugly sweater. And they're not having an ugly year, so we'll get back on the prediction coming up. It seems like they win every time. You don't make a prediction. (laughs) I know it's something I'm. I'm like I'm very wary about it as well. So you make uh, a prediction this week? It's yeah, I can do it right now. It's going to be thirty-seven twenty. Sorry, thirty-four twenty-seven. Are you sure about that? playing? A lot confident. of points.
1: That's a lot of points they're giving up.
2: Yeah, they're playing Baltimore. But, you know, they'll they'll score a lot of points against Baltimore, but Baltimore will uh, they'll run it up the middle all day long. So it's going to be a bit of a, uh, a slugfest on Christmas night, but we'll we'll get through it. Now, um, Rich. it is the Christmas Christmas season. Oh, Rich is wearing his snow
1: shirt, <laughs> <snow-themed> <laughs> snow themed shirt. shirt. I guess I'm the Grinch because you can't see, but my hair looks like I have a. <laughs> A little devil's horn. to look for you? <laughs> no, it's. I'm trying to get rid of this cowlick. What do they call that? The quaff. It's the it, this cowlick refuses to, to disappear. So anyway, no, I forgot my Christmas shit. I'm I'm a bad person. But I'm ready to celebrate with you guys. And um, I know Keith, you have something to share with us. So why don't we get right into it? Yeah, we'll do that. But first of all, everyone else, if you're listening and not watching, Steve looks like.
2: Remember the uh, was one of the oldest, longest running uh, Christmas cartoons. You know the Grinch. Yeah, you know the green guy. Steve is dressed like the Grinch right now. He has the green sweater and the Christmas it's hat. The, it's my top the, 10. Yeah. He has the typical, you know, Steve Suresky scowl going on. You yeah, know, that's the, right. The brooding look. You look good. But speaking of looking good and brooding, because it is Christmas and some people might be familiar with the uh, the Festivus for the rest of us, you know, the Seinfeld, Seinfeld. theme. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, one of the key themes that uh, the, the uh, Costanzas used to do, you know, they had the feats of strength. You know, that's where you'd wrestle with each other. But they also had the airing of grievances. And one one great thing about the podcast, we chat with a lot of people all the time. And we get really nice feedback and a lot of compliments and stuff like that. And every now and then we'll get a critique. And some of them are good, but some of them are just amazing. So we just received a great critique and, you know, I just want to read out some of the highlights of the critique. And so this is in line with the uh, airing of grievances. So so this person took the time to write us. And I'm just going to hit the highlights. He says, your podcast is so awful. Okay. Where do I start with letting you know how shit your show is? You three babbling dipshits. <laughs> you three clowns. It's it's actually in line with a lot of stuff. He's inclusive. Uh, yeah. Oh, you know, he calls us. He said, you dumb turds as well. <laughs> and then he he also says he stupidly tunes in every week to to watch and pay attention. Oh, I love it. Thank you for listening. He, yeah. And then he sign off with respectfully. So he, you know, this, this person took the time to, and you know, there's a lot more information in there, you know, give suggestions on what we can do to get better. And uh, it's funny to hear the words where you can chop it up because we're in control of the podcast we can do that right steve right. uh but we're going to try to get better in in 24 at a lot of things that guy so was that really was, spreading the uh holiday cheer there he was airing his grievances and um <laughs> it gave us i know yeah, he gave us some things to think about and we'll we'll do a a bit better in 24
1: i'm just everyone. happy he listens every week so that that's nice despite our <laughs> despite the babbling Many and turds that we are. Grieving turds? <laughs> right. uh, he called us a lot of things. Uh, okay. Well, thanks for listening. Anyways. Uh, well, yeah. speaking of grieving turds, uh, Stephen
0: Gilbo <laughs> is out this week again, this week, um, <laughs> bringing a new EV mandate to Canada. So I'll kind of just note the highlights here for everybody. Um, And so... Highlights. So Canada's car, car makers, car makers will be mandated that 20% of their sales are electric or plug-in hybrid vehicles by 2026, 60% of them by 2030, and 100% by 2035. Um, so we're going to get into it uh, rather than pontificate and pretend to be, you know, EV experts here. Um, but I think it's relatively straightforward. Anyone with a half a brain. But we do have uh, David Rapson, who has been on the show before. He's going to come on for 15, 20 minutes here and provide some commentary. Uh, this is a guy that, you know, again, works for the U.S. Federal Reserve, studying rich weather, energy uh, and
1: transportation
0: transition, yeah. the green transition. Yeah. This is his whole thing. This is all he does, is it not?
1: Yeah, so he's an expert. Um he's a he's a PhD in economics. He's um one of my friends um and he teaches at the University of UC so University of California Davis and he studies the global transportation decarbonization. So this is like a fastball down the middle right in his wheelhouse. He's literally an expert in sort of the feasibility, the pathway um, to um, the electrif- electrifying road vehicles in wealthy countries. I mean, this—we are literally—we got the expert um in this particular subject, uh, who's going to tell us sort of what he thinks about um this policy that um, our environmental czar—and I think that's an appropriate name for him uh is yeah is going to do in canada and and um and we'll uh, yeah we don't we don't know what he's going to say yet we literally we uh, it's like the last minute guest we, we we spoke to him yesterday late at night he said hey do you want to jump on and talk to us about this thing so here we go we're going to talk to him in a second and, and i'm sure he'll he'll give us some insights maybe stevie g tipped him off that's right oh and i think he's our first repeat guest which is kind of fun yeah so there is. you go um who had but- who had that on the bingo card nobody that yeah yeah he wasn't yeah that's yeah hey, there you go um
0: so we're going to again we're going to chat with david here about the ev stuff cuz i think it's incredibly important there's going to be obviously uh, knock on effects etc um but then we're going to jump over to canada's cpi numbers that came out this week uh we got some update on the retail sales We've got Canada's population growth figures that came out, which are just mind-blowing. So, kind of, kind of jump into all that. Some of the activity here in financial markets leading up to the holidays, Um, and so you know, stick around for for all that. But uh, why don't we jump to David's interview right now? David, welcome back to the show. Thanks for coming on.
3: It's my pleasure, guys.
0: So, um, yeah, you were you were early on the on the tweet storm there. While the when the policy was kind of leaked, you had a really good. Twitter thread, and that's when I kind of reach out to Rich and say, "Well, oh, we got to get back, get you back on the show." Since that sort of tweet thread, um, the official announcement again has come out. So, your initial concern was that the federal government might not include hybrids, for example, and it looks like they have included hybrids again. So, uh, I'm kind of curious your thoughts now that they've included hybrids. I guess we don't have the details yet in terms of like what hybrids are allowed or con- what what is considered a hybrid
3: yeah so uh that was one of my many uh initial concerns and yeah it's it's true that these uh the, the details of these policies are still being formulated it's pretty clear actually even from reading the policy itself which i've i've since done uh, it was released after i wrote those those tweets so um yeah they they are going to be including plug-in hybrids with battery sizes that are large i think the intent there is to have people uh, driving on the electric drivetrain more than the gasoline component of the drivetrain Um, i think it's good to include those i think we need to uh, have as many pressure relief valves to this policy as possible Um, but you know the the tweets themselves and i know that you guys also have a lot of skepticism towards this policy so i wanted to maybe first start by steel manning this policy because i think it's it's, the, it's not like this is a completely idiotic idea. There are lots of reasons why people would want to push electric vehicles. And I don't want to come across as like saying that those, those don't exist. But I think we need to admit them before then looking at also the other side of, you know, why we might not want these. So the steel man kind of argument for pushing towards EVs is they are the best current technology option for decarbonizing transportation, they, they 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 just are they're really they're really promising in that regard and that's because they emit less co2 overall on average than gasoline cars and so that's a benefit we care about climate change we care about decarbonizing transportation this is one way that we can we can really do it the extent of this is based on the composition of the electricity sector Right. The extent to which EVs are going to reduce overall emissions depends on how the electricity is being generated. And in Canada, actually, it Canada has a really clean grid overall. It's about 60 percent hydro, which is carbon free. There's an incredible endowment of hydro power um, and the potential for hydro power in Canada. So Canada is actually a very natural place uh, to do this. It's about 10% nuclear and it's not very heavy on coal, although as we'll probably get to and as I mentioned in my tweet string, that's not true everywhere in the country. In my home province of Nova Scotia, for example, it's 60% coal and this should be a major uh, red flag. But overall, in terms of steel manning this aspiration in Canada, it's a fairly clean grid and the grid is getting cleaner over time and batteries are getting cheaper so when we're talking about a policy that's going out 12 years, this is actually, you know, there's some degree of, hey, we're going to project that all of these other things we're doing to clean the grid and all of these savings that we're seeing from reduced battery costs, those are going to continue into the future. And this policy is going to be, you know, not really a big deal 10 years down the, the line. That's the steel manning of the policy. Maybe I'll pause there because I, I do... Because next I do, like, there are lots of issues with it that I just didn't mention.
0: Well, yeah, I've got, I mean, I've got a whole host of questions here, which is like, okay, so first one being, he says, okay, we got a 20% of the sales have to be electric or plug and hybrid by 2026. I mean, that's like, that's like two, what, two and a half, at this point, it's basically two years from now. And I think, what are we running at in Canada? Is it like 10%
1: of new car sales or
0: EV? I don't know the exact figure,
1: but... Do... I can look it up. I can pull it up. It's, it's very low. So I'm on, I'm on the IEA website, so if you give me a second, I can catch up. So you guys go for it.
3: The way that this will happen is through subsidies. And subsidies are an effective way to stimulate demand, but a very expensive way to stimulate demand. And the reason why they're uh, a very expensive way is that the government is not able to distinguish between people who would have bought an electric vehicle in the absence of a subsidy, of which there are many people, right, lots of people want EVs, they want to signal, they want to be clean, they want to signal that they're being uh, green. So lots of people would buy these without subsidies, but they're going to get subsidies anyway, because the government can't tell them from the people who the subsidy is actually, uh, you know, convincing to buy on the margin. Um, so I think- Dave, Dave,
2: maybe though they can review, you know, your social credit score, and then they can tell,
3: <laughs> yeah,
2: who will deserve one or not.
3: Yeah, that's true. Maybe a uh, central bank digital currency might might work well here, uh, Rich. Uh,
1: carry on, incentivizing <laughs> good behavior. But like,
0: yeah, I, I yeah, I do wonder. is like you know, I mean, I I so I drive a I drive a Tesla like every other realtor here in Vancouver oh, core so, <laughs> I know God I'm the worst I took you know but like I look at that and say man I was looking at it the other day I'm like I think the cheapest EV right now in Canada and I do agree like technology is evolving and it's going to get better and and cheaper over time but like I think the cheapest EV today is a Nissan Leaf which like kind of kind of a shitty car it's 40 grand
3: so EV it's like expensive it's gonna be hard to get. So I so I'm gonna put on my American lens here for a second, which I think doesn't quite map to Canada in the same proportions. But just let me tell you how I'm thinking about the EV market in the US. Like everything in the in the US right now, we've got kind of one third of the population on the left, one third in the center, and one third on the right. And right now, when it comes to EVs, we're harvesting those one-third of people on the left. They care a lot about the environment. They're big into all these EV mandates, and they're often rich and they can afford a more expensive car. They're just buying EVs. Okay. Once we exhaust that subpopulation, we're going to get into the centrist people who maybe they're just looking for the best car for them at any moment in time, right? They want the best deal. They're looking, you know, at what services the car offers, you know, what's the price of gasoline versus electricity, that type of thing. And then on, on the right-hand side of the spectrum, you've got people who are actively politically against EVs because it's been a little bit of a politicized issue. In Canada, I don't know how those proportions break down, how many people, I don't know whether it's one-third, 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 maybe half of the population would buy EVs, they just want EVs, they're willing to pay more for them, And it's not going to take much subsidies to get them to do it. But once you exhaust those kind of ideologically aligned consumers who are wealthy, there really is a question. How do you get people who don't really care about EVs, they just want a cheap, good car, how do you get them to buy it? And I think the answer is subsidies, but time will tell how effective that's going to be and how costly.
2: But Dave, I have have a a question. Yeah, yeah. how are they? So let's use the twenty percent number by by twenty six, right? Um, and that's probably twenty five model cars. No, no, sorry, there was the twenty seven model cars, right? Because yeah. it's the way yeah. the cycle works. Are, are they going to place it at the sales level or production plus imports of cars? Like, how will and then. If you're not hitting twenty percent or who's penalized, or is twenty percent just a, yeah. a target they're hoping to achieve? Do, do you know what I mean?
3: Yeah, Keith, that's a great question. My I, I haven't seen the details or been behind the scenes with in these deliberations in Canada, but my strong sense is they're modeling this after the Zev mandate in California, which it, which has been adopted also by you know ten other states in in the US as well. The ZEV mandate has a tradable credit system that is implemented at the OEM level, at the car manufacturer level, where these OEMs, if they sell cars in Canada, they have to either sell enough EVs or buy credits to make the difference. Okay, so for every extra gasoline car they they, they sell, they have to buy a credit from, say, Tesla that's only selling EVs. And the price of those can get very high. So they're kind of the 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 um, enforcement of this policy is going to happen kind of from two directions. One is lucrative and expensive subsidies for consumers who are buying, but then this uh, Zev mandate that is going to be implemented through the supply side, where non complying OEMs are going to face increasingly high costs of buying these permits if they're not selling enough cars. That, by the way, means that if I'm, you know, Chrysler or, or Ford up in Canada and I'm trying to sell an EV and I'm sh- one car short of meeting my ZEV mandate threshold, then I'm going to lower the price on that car, right? I'm going to lower it, the price on that and it car also, should otherwise I'd have to buy a credit.
2: But this also should mean that the price of the non-EV cars, like the gas cars, should go up like they're going to go up 10 20 percent whatever exactly exactly and, that's right and what is the ev uh, opportunity like in the non you know Kitslano four-door car market like if you're in the prairies or in rural anywhere you, you can't use those cars to do stuff like you need a pickup Yeah, truck. the performance of the yeah. battery
0: um dave i'm kind of curious your thoughts i mean like in vancouver here we always have a mild climate i can tell you like Teslas are everywhere. They're all over the place. Um, and obviously we've got, you know, BC Hydro is pretty we have pretty cheap electricity here. So I think the EV stuff really makes sense in places like Vancouver. But yeah, to Keith's point, I wonder about places like Alberta where you know gasoline is relatively cheap and hydroelectricity is pretty expensive over there.
3: Yeah, I mean there are two things you mentioned there. One is the climate and one is the relative prices and you know, I so on, let's start maybe with the relative prices of gasoline and electricity. I wrote a paper that, uh, that looked, tried to answer this question. We were wondering how much do people care about electricity prices versus gasoline prices when they buy, when they decide whether to buy an EV or gasoline car? And it turns out, at least this was a study in California, they care a lot more about gasoline prices. So when gasoline prices are high, people buy a lot more EVs. But what we also find is that. People, so that kind of, that indicates, by the way, that people don't really know what their electricity price is, right? And that might ring true to you and many of, of the listeners. That's, you know, one of the main things that I learned in the first 10 years of my career is, well, people just, you know, economists have this model of rationality. Well, it requires people being informed. And in this particular dimension, people don't understand electricity prices. They don't know what they pay. and how I would say that's a
0: very accurate statement.
3: Yeah. So, and we find that actually in this paper as well, where people who buy electric vehicles in expensive electricity districts, they end up selling them sooner than in cheap districts. So they're learning, people are learning about how expensive it is. Um, in California, you know, we've got the most expensive electricity in the continental US uh, on average, but there's a lot of kind of variability, which is what we use for, for, for this study uh, within California anyway. People are attentive to the, I think, up front, people don't know a lot about electricity, but they're going to learn quickly when they buy an EV and start seeing their electric bill. Um, And yeah, in BC, that might have a very different effect on demand for EVs where electricity is cheap than it does in, say, Alberta, where electricity is more expensive. So I think that's really important. And the second thing you mentioned is climate. And it's, I mean, there are just so many stories out there. You don't have to search hard for people who drive Teslas in very cold climates, experiencing worse battery uh, range for their for their car. And this is something that stresses people out. It's a import. It's probably the most important feature of the car. How far can you go? Uh, and yeah, this is this is something that, for two reasons, is worse in cold climates. One is because the battery has more resistance in the cold, so it takes more kilowatt hours to um, you know, to charge it and it dissipates more quickly. When the second thing is you have to heat the cabin of your car somehow. In a gasoline car, you do that with because of the fact that the gasoline engine is so inefficient, it just casts off a lot of heat. We capture that heat to heat the cabin of the car. That doesn't happen in an electric vehicle. We have to actually draw down the battery of the EV in order to heat the cabin. So, yeah, EVs are less well suited to uh, to cold climates. And hey, you know, Canada's. Got a lot of cold climates. And Canada's so,
0: so Dave, also. Can I, sorry, can started, I jump in there? Yeah, oh, okay, go, go ahead. For, Canada's. Okay. I was just going to say that Canada's also not that dense like the U.S. I mean, like you'd go to, you know, rural Saskatchewan or you know, rural Alberta. I mean, it's yeah. I, anyways,
1: continue. Sorry. So my question is just like you know, at the beginning you said you know we're subsidizing people, and the word you threw in, and and you weren't talking about me. You were saying we're subsidizing. Sort of the rich, the early adopters who are wealthier and on average care more about the environment, and to me that is is fun is one of the major philosophical issues I have with this. As with most, or maybe not most, but a lot of climate change policy, you're basically allocating capital from the poor to the rich, and 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 I just find that it, I mean, to say what rankles me would be an understatement. I think it's outrageous, basically, that um, anyone. Who is of a certain um, socio-economic status is getting any money from the government? I don't. And frankly, I don't care what the environmental outcomes are. I think we should be subsidizing poor people, not rich people. I mean, how do you, is that a fair sort of criticism, or am I too hawkish on that piece?
3: Well, I think it's a completely fair criticism. When you look at um, look at where the clean energy subsidies have gone in the U.S., they've gone overwhelmingly to rich people, and that's because Rich people buy new cars and new EVs are subsidized. Lower income households are buying used cars and those aren't subsidized. Well, re- more recently they have become so, but for a long time they weren't. Same with rooftop solar. That was subsidized. Who puts rooftop solar you know, on their house? People who own their house. Well, rich people own their houses. So the you know economists have written papers estimating this. this these, these subsidy programs are some of the most regressive programs you could design. And I think it is a deep flaw. We should care about whether these benefits are going to rich people or poor people. And unfortunately, with these policies, uh, it's pretty regressive. Creating
0: visual content is an essential part of what I do, but the creative process hasn't always been easy. Here at the Lunia, we have to create cover art, social media posts, and images for our website that normally requires an expensive full-time graphic designer. However, that's all been made possible using Canva. Canva for Teams is a design platform that makes it easy for anyone to create stunning content in any format from social media posts to videos, presentations, websites, and marketing materials for our live events. Ever since I found Canva for Teams, it's been easy to collaborate and design with the team, which makes the whole process so much more creative and fun. Using Canva for Teams, Keith, Rich, and I can collaborate on designs, providing seamless feedback and ensuring our brand stays consistent using custom brand kits. Design and collaborate with Canva for Teams. Right now, you can get a free 45-day extended trial when you go to canva.me slash looneyhour. That's canva.me slash hour for a free
1: 45-day extended trial. Canva.me slash out. Okay. So one of the comments I've, you know, one of the comments Justin Trudeau made, and he says, you know, um, climate policy is economic policy. And I don't think he meant, he said that, and I was I knew I was going to hold on to that one because I think that's exactly right. And I think he's making an economic policy that is fundamentally regressive, e.g. worse in relative terms for poor relative to rich. I think that's number one. But also just, again, philosophically, I mean, isn't this just basically like almost a throwback? And I don't mean to exaggerate, but it is almost like a throwback to like Maoist policy, whereas like we're just banning something. And we're not banning something that's like cigarettes or tobacco or heroin or, or these things. We're banning something that is extremely useful and not only is extremely useful but ubiquitous and with a hugely long shelf life that every and so to me it's just like like i find i just wondering like i know this is your expertise and maybe again i'm forgive me for being so hawkish but just as a philosophy for trying to engender its use is that the right way or is that the right would you suggest that that's a good way to do it
3: Yeah, so actually, you know, I had a whole list of kind of things, points that I wanted to touch on the challenge side of this policy. And the bans versus mandates point that you just brought up is the number one point on the list. So I want to take just a second and tell you why you're right about that. Okay. Think about the types of things we ban, or the types of things we mandate. Usually, we're banning something that is, you know, nearly ubiquitously viewed as bad. Or we're mandating something that's nearly universally seen as good, and those bans and mandates, those are just nudging the final like couple percent into, you know, what is the pro-social uh, outcome—the thing that we think is best for society, or maybe even paternalistically for that person. To ban gasoline cars, for that to be efficient, it would have to be the case. That most people, if given the choice, most firms, if given the choice what to produce, and most people, most consumers, when given the choice of what to buy, they would produce and consume electric vehicles. And maybe there's some stragglers on the, you know, on the margin who aren't going to. And that's what the that's what the ban or mandate is going to nudge into compliance. But that is clearly not the case here. There are. So first of all, EVs and gasoline cars are not perfect substitutes. They offer very different consumer experiences, both in terms of price, in terms of refueling options, in terms of range, in terms of towing power. You know, Steve, you you mentioned, uh, you know, the need in some places for uh, for pickup trucks. And, you know, they, these are very different across gasoline and, and EV drivetrains. So they're not perfect substitutes. And it's completely reasonable to think that 10, 15 years from now, we could end up in a mixed equilibrium where it's still beneficial for some of our transportation services to be met by gasoline cars, by pickup trucks, let's say that are driving on liquid fuels. And so these bans can be extremely costly to the extent that we get that wrong. It might be the case It might be the case that we still have more innovation to go. And we're going to have pickup trucks with awesome batteries and electric grids that are cheap 12 years from now, such that everyone would have bought EVs anyway. And in that case, these mandates are not going to matter all that much. What I'm concerned about is the other state of the world, where we don't get that technological progress, where electricity is still expensive, where EVs are more expensive than gasoline cars, and we don't get the same performance out of them either, And some significant portion of the population would be better off in a gasoline car in Canada. And we're going to tell them that we can't, that they can't do that. That is extremely costly economically, not to mention probably politically. So I I think that that's where the the danger in this policy really lies. And that's why I think we really need to build in pressure relief valves, safety valves to this policy to mitigate against that risk.
2: Yeah, it's kind of, I'm uh... already, Yeah, I'm already hearing, you know, from the the political side up here that uh, Atlantic Canada is going to be exempt from this uh, (laughs) new carbon tax. (laughs) Anyway, Dave, this this is a fascinating discussion. I I really enjoy it. I hope people are appreciating what's happening. This is a pretty big policy that's going to be, uh, I like to use the word suggested onto us, but it's, you know, it's being rammed down people's, uh, whatever.
0: Steve, Steve. to your point, right? You're talking about sort of, you know, the supply and demand, right? I mean, like the, the market will kind of normally dictate what they, what they want to buy and and whatnot. But, you know, I noticed like, you know, Ford announced what a month or two ago that they're cutting production of the F-150 Lightning, which is their EV truck, which is, I think that's, you know, their, their pickup truck is their best selling vehicle. And obviously they took that electric and that, so it's just, it's just not quite there. Um, I was also gonna ask you on the infrastructure side, because like I said, I, I drive my Tesla here in Vancouver. I love it. I think it's a fantastic car. Uh, I think they work really well here right now, but I look at it and say, Man, the infrastructure, like so for just for me just charging my strata building here, it was like I had to move like I had to move mountains to get it done. Uh, and it's a small building, and I have the expertise. To, to get it done because I, this is I deal with stratas on a daily basis, um. But it was even very apartment very, buildings. Sorry, yeah, apartment buildings. Department. Yeah, it was incredibly difficult to to get the electrical infrastructure even put in place because I was like the first EV in my building, and they're like, "Oh God, what do we do?" Like this, you know. And and I can tell you, like, all these other buildings in BC are having like the same issues, and they're doing like these infrastructure reviews and then you got to approve it by the board and then you got to do the upgrades. And so, and I'm saying this is only with like, I don't know, Rich, again, EVs are what in BC or Vancouver, maybe between five and
1: 10% of the total fleet. I can tell you right now uh, in Canada, it's 1.6% of the EV stock as of 2022, according to the IEA data, which I'm looking at right now, just to give you a comparable in the U.S., it's um the stock of EVs is 1.3. I mean, there are places like Norway where it's much, 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 much higher, but there's 5 million people who live in Norway and they're all millionaires. So it's different, yeah. different kettle so, of fish. And I would say, so like Steve, I said, I, yeah, go
0: ahead.
3: Yeah, Steve, your 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 point is really important. The infrastructure piece, we haven't fully grappled with it, or at least the people who are designing this policy haven't fully grappled with it. And it's, there are no clear solutions. So one of the, you know, let me just, last time I drove uh, into Halifax, uh, where there's an enormous housing shortage, just like there is in most of Canada right now, they've relaxed the zoning requirements uh, for for new builds, uh, because there's an aspiration to create more housing density, which makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense to do that. And so when I drove into, into the town from, you know, went around the Armdale Rotary, and there was a 40-story Apartment building in what used to be a you know single-family home neighborhood. This thing tower, it was really jarring actually to see. But probably this is now going to be filled in around it with a whole bunch of other 40-story apartment buildings. Well, the proposition for EVs is very different if you own your own home and have a driveway than it is if you live in a high-rise, just as you mentioned. And even if you have own your own home, many Homes were not designed to have uh, the power level coming in, you know, from the street that will support a level, say a level two charger, which will allow you to charge your Tesla, in, you know, a couple hours instead of 12 hours. Or I can tell you
0: right now, I just have a standard plug um, because we don't have the infrastructure to do a level two. And that's it. It requires the the building to raise money through a through right. a special assessment and then it's, it's, it's a, it's a large undertaking. And so it's a nobody's undertaking. Yeah.
3: Somebody did this, uh, a researcher in, uh, in Berkeley did this, uh, and he owns a small multi-unit in, in Oakland. And he tried to basically retrofit this to allow for charges in his basement. And it costs, I, I forget what the final amount was, something like $60,000. It took him months of effort to get the permits. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a big deal to, to be able to do this. Um, so people who live in multi-units, people who live in old homes with, uh, who need power upgrades, not to mention just the, uh, the last mile of the electric grid, these transformers and feeders that are going to the neighborhoods. Uh, we're going to be putting a lot of strain on those. Those will need upgrading. We need to think about these costs. It's not, it's not as simple as just saying, Hey, well, let's do this. We're you know, we need to weigh the costs and benefits. And right now I feel like this is much more of a kind of, religious or panic decision than it is an economic uh you know the result of some type of an economic analysis that shows that this is optimal
0: so yeah i mean basically just to kind of confirm here um that you know the infrastructure everyone's going to be driving basically evs and everyone's going to basically have an electric heat pump to heat their homes and again i just wonder where does anyone run the numbers on the electrical capacity? And even if you could add the capacity in a relatively short time frame to build the infrastructure, like I said, this guy's saying by 2030, which is six, basically it's six years from now, 60% of new, new, new vehicle sales are electric or, or hybrid. Um, that, that's just a, the light lightning quick pace. Uh, I, I just don't see the feasibility of it. And that I guess it matters, Steve, you're just, Details. So, well, to people rich's who, point, right? Live, I mean, people who, who live who in apartment the buildings
1: don't matter. People who live who are, in apartment buildings don't matter.
0: Let's well, yeah, exactly. I mean, who are the people that are going to suffer under this? It's it's ironically the people that he's claiming to help.
1: Well, that wouldn't <laughs> yeah. be the first time. I have one more question before I know we're we're sort of going over our. Our scheduled time. I mean, is there any idea or is there, has anyone ever thought of sort of a different strategy instead of a jam this down your throat because we think we're smarter than you strategy, um, of a pull strategy? So, for example, the government can underwrite the building of, let's say, a million chargers everywhere. And instead of telling people that they should buy electric vehicles, just make it super, super, super easy to do so uh to to own one and, and so pulling people into that market rather than jamming it down their throat is as and whenever thought about that as a strategy
3: yeah yeah people i i think there's actually widespread belief that the most dollar for dollar the best uh, the most effective way to to uh to stimulate EV adoption is through building infrastructure just as you described I'm a little bit concerned about that because we I don't trust the government to know where these things should go <laughs> okay. um, or to build the right size or the right configuration or technology. And we could just squander boatloads of money doing that type okay, of thing. Okay, fair enough. So I'm i am a little bit concerned about that approach. I think we should be going slowly. I think we should make it real expensive to pollute because that's what creates the headroom for all sorts of different options. Maybe people go into fuel-efficient gasoline cars instead of hybrids, or into hybrids instead of plug-in hybrids, right? Maybe there are little margins that add up to a lot of carbon abatement that that would really be valuable. Um, but kind of choosing this particular technology as a winner, it honestly, I think it's we're just going to look back in five, ten years. I mean. Already I would, I'm, I'm making bets with some of my more EV optimistic friends about what EV penetration is gonna look like in the future. And I'm feeling very comfortable about taking the underside on those bets um, because I, I just think- Can you, we- can you
2: introduce me to, to some of these suckers <laughs> as well?
3: <laughs> um, although I have to say, if, you, if this is a topic you're interested in, you shouldn't just be talking to me because I am one of the more skeptical EV people uh, in the environmental economics community. There are people who study this stuff who uh, who are less critical than I am about this. And there are a few of them in Canada. Uh, and, and, you know, so maybe you should talk to them as well. I'm just one view, but yeah, it just doesn't add up to me. And I think we need to build in safety valves, pressure relief valves. Like we need to allow for imports from the US. If we're going to, you know, force new EVs, new car sales to be all EVs. We need to be able to import gasoline cars from the US. We need to um, you know, have tradable permits, like I mentioned earlier with these ZEV mandates, with price caps, pressure relief valves on the tradable permits so that we're not killing the car industry. And we need frequent reevaluation of, uh, of these policies. In two years, if we're not anywhere close to hitting the two-year target, then maybe we should reevaluate. And that's exactly what we just saw in the UK. They had targeted 2030 for some goals and they obviously that wasn't going to going to happen so they they pushed it out to 2035 i think all of, I think we're going to see that across the board for these very ambitious ev mandates uh they're just going to reevaluate when it becomes clear that 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 they're they're not going to happen
0: david i got one final question uh, just to wrap it up here <clears throat> but um sometimes there's the rebuttal and have you done much studying on just sort of like how green these vehicles are in terms of like, because uh, you have to factor in the production of, you know, electric vehicles. And obviously, uh, you know, building these or manufacturing these batteries requires a lot of, you know, precious metals and and, and um, rare earth metals, right? So how, how green are they?
3: So, yeah, I did the first paper I wrote on EVs was asking that question, looking at the life cycle perspective of EVs from like, all the the you know getting all the materials, manufacturing them, transporting them, et cetera, and um, let me just say that we were looking at carbon, carbon dioxide. We were looking at greenhouse gas emissions, and I think that the battery uh, impacts are much more local ecosystem impacts. They're not they're not global climate change impacts. They're you know, toxins in the water tables. Their disruption of fragile ecosystems. Their massive evaporation pools for lithium extraction. That type of thing, uh, and those are really hard to quantify. Uh, and and we didn't even attempt to do that in 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 that paper. But um, you know, in California, uh, the EVs. Uh, let me see. I think. Um, I mean, they're cleaner. They're cleaner. If, if, if natural gas. So the main question is what is the marginal source of electricity? When you plug in, what is firing up on the grid? And typically that's going to be natural gas in some, in Nova Scotia, it's probably coal. When it's natural gas, you're saving some, you're, you know, they're green, you're saving some emissions and that's good. It's not going to zero because you're burning natural gas. If it's coal, you shouldn't be doing it in a cold climate. You just shouldn't be like China.
1: You mean like China,
3: (laughs) like China and like Nova Scotia. I'm concerned about, you know, the and here I'm not even it's not even the carbon emissions that are most offensive to me. It's the fact that the toxins that come out of these coal plants kill people. They're going to be killing my Nova Scotian, you know, neighbors who are downwind of these coal plants. And that is I, I think it's just unacceptable to ignore the 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 evidence on that is just so clear, and it's been trumpeted from the hilltops for decades. And so to kind of ignore that in Nova Scotia and this policy, I think it is irresponsible. And, you know, I, I really wish that they would reevaluate at least carve outs for the mandate for the for the provinces that have a really hard time getting off, off of coal. I've thought a lot about how to decarbonize the grid in Nova Scotia as well. And it's very difficult to do because you can't get natural gas up there easily. So, you know, they're building the Atlantic loop and they're going to try to get a bunch of uh, a bunch of hydro from uh, from Newfoundland. Uh, You know, I'll believe that when I see it. I hope it happens. But until it happens, we shouldn't be simulating EVs there.
2: Except Nova Scotia, right, Keith?
3: (laughs) You know what should be mandated? There's at least
2: nine votes down here, I think. Nine (laughs) nine, uh, seats in parliament. That's what they want. (laughs)
3: You know what should be mandated though is, is that sweater that Keith's wearing cuz that is that is fierce that's a really nice sweater Keith It's It's
2: hey thank you for saying
3: that it's it's my uh it's my football
2: it's my football oh, it's uh, a, sweater
3: Oh it's a Oh I take it back now I didn't I I thought it was just a Christmas sweater but it's a 49 er sweater well, it's not
1: just a, Dave's a Christmas sweater Dave's a Patriots fan, I think. Right? You're still a Patriots fan, even though even oh, though Brady's I, not on there anymore.
3: I'm a Patriots fan. It is hard times up there in Patriots Nation. Yeah, <laughs> difficult. Difficult. You, you
0: guys had a, you guys had a few good years though.
3: We had a, we had a run, didn't we? Yeah,
0: uh, Dave, it was a good Dave, run. Yeah. Preci- appreciate this. Has been, been uh, so incre- incredibly insightful. Uh, we highly encourage everybody to to give you a follow there on Twitter. We'll plug your handle, and uh, we'll hope to have you on for a, a third time, hopefully soon.
3: Yeah, that'd be great, guys. Always fun to talk to you. It would be great if people follow me on Twitter at Raps and Energy. Really appreciate any follows there. I'm gonna try to be putting out a little more content on this stuff uh in the future. So awesome. love, love we'll what see. you guys do here. Thanks a lot we'll for having me.
0: See you soon. Again. I thought that was a pretty good,
1: uh balanced conversation there with Dave. So
0: he's decidedly
1: couple... not he's decidedly not a turd. <laughs> he's wonderful and I'm, we're grateful to have him on. Thank you, Dave. I have a couple of observations, right? So uh, everyone
2: in the preppers world or prepper world, is that what you would call it? Yeah, you're, you're, uh, you're like in the they're... charge there. I'm yeah, a prepper, so, go for it. Okay, here's you. I, I envision a world coming up where if we get to 10, 20, 30, 40, whatever percentage they're trying to get this towards, um, all of a sudden everyone is dependent upon the electrical grid, to just to move stuff around. So for you preppers, start stocking up on gasoline and gas cars and just keep them stored because you know what happens next? Here's the next thing. If I am unfriendly towards the West, and there might be a couple of big countries out there that are, you take out the grid. You do one of those big, whatever they call There's a movie out about it now, a Solar Blast or something rich. Is that on and Netflix? Yeah, it's pretty bad acting, uh, truthfully. The plot's a bit... I saw a bit, it. Yeah, saw it's it was not... Don't, not it, this not is great. not a... You know, it's Christmas time. You need to watch Die Hard, everyone, <laughs> not, not this other one. But to be truthful here, um, you know, if, if our electrical grid... And it's it's going to take on an incredible amount of, um, of demand and usage as we go down this path. You know, as Dave suggested, you know, the ability for us to make that grid more efficient or in- increase the production. I don't think we're going to be able to do it. So if the grid goes down, you know, everyone check out Rich up there at, at the lake with his gas guzzling car and chainsaw as chainsaw, well. Chainsaw, more importantly. Hey, Rich,
0: you know what's funny? The thing about this uh, Gilbo, the most dangerous man in Canada. Remember, we had that conversation. Is This is a guy that was like anti-nuclear. So he's like, hey, we should electrify everything. Everyone's going to drive EVs and have heat pumps. But he's like, I'm not for, it's like he doesn't you know, even for nuclear you know he had to be coerced by you know he had to get tapped on the shoulder by his own party to to sort of go on board with nuclear so this guy is just mentally not quite there but anyways so i'm still skeptical believer. with
1: uh, yeah
2: where, where, is, ahead, where are so. the chinese going with this rich well, what percentage are they trying to get to by when
1: Oh, I mean, I don't know the exact numbers for their target. I mean, the, the Chinese are ahead of the game as far as car exports. Certainly, uh, EV exports There's a company called EYD that's gone up. But the reality is, is um, China's electrical grid is something like 60% coal. Um, and all of their uh, all of their fossil fuel numbers are rising. So again, it, the percent is increasing from a very very low base, but their aggregate consumption of fossil fuels is rising as fast as any other country. I wonder how many people actually think about that
0: though, when they're just like they plug in their EV and they feel so good about like the environment, and you plug it in and you're like,
2: it's just tapping into the coal. Oh my god! I mean, so many. I, I mean, so in many, in I have, I'm a, but Rich, I'm in Nova Scotia. I have so many friends with these e cars, and they plug it in and they. Yeah, I haven't paid for gas forever, and I'm clean. You you can't even have the conversation; it just blows up, you know. It it doesn't work. So again, well, like it, even it, in Canada, it, if oh, we sorry, go down go this road, yeah, if we go down this road, it's like you know the you know the the suggestions that that you had there one or two episodes ago. I don't think we put a dent in any of this. I, I really don't, and it's going to as, as you keep pointing out, Rich it's, it's going to make gas cars more expensive and it's, it's a tax on lower income households.
0: That's so. a great, that's a great transition point. Cause like I said, I I, I just want to emphasize that I live in the city of Vancouver city. of Vancouver's thing is like greenest city in, I think North America is like their, their tagline. Like that's like literally want to be the greenest city. And so, like I said, these guys are like, Everyone is basically mandated to have heat pumps now uh, for new construction. Everyone's going to be now running air conditioning right through their heat pump. Uh, Everyone's going to be having EV cars. And you're just like, wow, like it's pretty cheap to plug in your electric vehicle today. But like what's that going to look like in seven, eight, 10 years from now? So I think this kind of gets to the issue, which the larger issue, which is The affordability concerns, right? I think there's a a whole cohort of people that are sort of environmentally conscious and they want to sort of adopt a lot of these policies, but how far, how much are they willing to sacrifice to adopt these policies, i.e. your standard of living? Are you really willing to um, lower your standard of living for the environment, I think, is, is really gonna be the question moving forward. And so that kind of brings us, Rich, to uh Canada's CPI headline inflation numbers came out this week. Um, so we're still kind of grappling with with some cost of living challenges. I think headline inflation sort of stuck, stuck at three point one percent year over year.
1: Yeah. Um, so I think it rose zero point one percent. Um, a couple of things um we always like to talk about. So, you know, excluding energy, CPI increased 3.5% in November, if I'm not mistaken. So, um, but we, but as always, we, it's important to sort of talk about the, the, you know, the the other important points, which is like what's going on with shelter, uh, which is a big chunk. We know that um, rent just continues to skyrocket and we'll discuss (laughs) i'm laughing again because it's just we the reason i laugh laugh, like we get some criticism because my laugh number one i'm a bit like dr hibbert number two it's because some of these things are just like have been are so obvious like we tell it, we talked about this like two years ago and you're like hey this is going to be a problem and like yeah we're smart but like people who are paid to think about this they just whiff it either on purpose or by accident so that's why i kind of i find it just so outrageous but anyways so CORE basically rose to 3.5%. Shelter still continues to add a, a significant amount. We always talk about those three preferred measures, which the BOC um, ignored during the pandemic. Um, they're still up in 3.5, 3.4, and 3. So they've come off again from the peaks of of the 6, seven, eights and whatever we had a couple of years ago, but are still quite strong. I think the the rent is clearly going to be an issue going forward, whether it's politically or otherwise, and we'll discuss why that's such a big deal uh but yeah there's still still a lot of inflationary pressure and i don't think much has changed over the last couple of months i think we're we we discussed this remember we said it's not going to be transitory and we argued that it was going to we're now in sort of another a step level we were at 2% for a long time Stim, the outrageous stimulus we got the central bank, bond buying all that shenanigans. And now what the problem is is that you've now and inflation expectations have pushed up what I think is like this new steady state of inflation, which is in the three and a halfs. So unless you get something to to really collapse in the labor market, I think you're going to have that that pressure that that number is going to stay higher than certainly what the the target is for the BOC. Yeah,
0: just to, and to add to that point, because I know it's like everyone's funny, like you go on Twitter after the release and everybody just sort of like picks out like the, the point that they want to like <laughs> emphasize, right? So you can kind of manipulate the data to show it whatever you want, right? And I, you know, I am always a little bit skeptical that I, I personally think we've had this massive wave of inflation and but now prices are growing at, at a, a much slower. I would argue that they're growing, you know, kind of near that 2% range today, but the damage has already been done being that you know so mortgage interest costs uh accounted for one whole percent of cpi headline yeah. inflation so again so it's 3.1 if you hypothetically were to strip out mortgage interest costs you're at 2.1 shelter component is still the large to your point is the, one of the largest drivers that's rents anecdotally we're seeing rents have had peaked you know in the summer there's definitely the seasonality to it so it's too early to sort of raise the you know give the all clear signal, but I, mm. I think that rents are kind of bumping up against a bit of a ceiling here. So we'll see how that starts
1: reflecting in CPI shelter in, in the new year. But but it's seven point four. It's still incredibly high, yeah. if I'm not mistaken on that number. I mean that's and it was down from eight point one. I mean it's still think high. About, yeah. Think about that. Think about that like it's your largest outgoing. For most people, certainly yeah. will. I mean, I still live with my mom, but <laughs> it will be the the largest outgoing soon enough. And if that's growing at like at nearly you know seven eight percent, you're 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 definitely not getting that kind of wage growth. So, anyways, we'll see what happens. I mean, Case... so right now,
2: I mean, like yeah, so three and a half is the new two, right? That, right, that's where we are. And the whole thing about like rent increases, like I no doubt on an aggregate basis, you know, you're coming up with with these numbers. But people who have it are experiencing the rent increases, that's not what they're experiencing. They've gone from having, you know, two, three, five years of a lease paying, say, you know, 1500 bucks a month. And then finally, boom, it goes to 2200 a month or 2500 a month.
3: Yeah, yeah. The turn- so, I mean- so
2: the turnover rent, so that's the big difference, right? So like turnover, like let's just
0: put this as an example. If you've lived in your apartment for, you know, your rental apartment for five years, and, you know, typically once you're in there, you know, we have rental restrictions that only allow, you know, a lot of these landlords to raise rents, let's say by 2% a year, 3% a year. So you get these marginal increases. Um, now, once you leave and you go to, to find a new apartment or maybe your landlord decides to sell and you have to go and find something, the turnover rent, the market rent is not 1500 now, it's like 2300 Right. So it's like well now you're facing that large one time increase. Um, that's where you're still seeing like the huge gap but in terms of um yeah, the, the turnover rents are still quite high.
2: So I have a real stupid suggestion. And everyone is gonna say, Oh, boomer man, that's really stupid. But wouldn't it be great if if this could happen? It would never happen everyone involved with policy making on, on the government side central banks as well as you know in in all aspects of of uh government for them to really appreciate what lower income households are experiencing how about for one year everyone their compensation is reduced to that level mm. and it's yeah you know it sounds a bit funny yeah that will never happen but Again, to appreciate what it's like to really, hey, try and decide what you do with that extra $50 at the end of the month, unless you're in that position to experience it, you don't know what it feels like. So with central bankers making these comments and making policy moves and, you know, know, this new EV policy coming out, which is absolutely going to make it more expensive to buy any kind of car, you know, regardless of what kind of rebate that you're going to get. Um, it, it, you got to be in those shoes to be in that desperation mode to really appreciate. Yeah, maybe we should do things differently here. So, there's an article actually came out today
0: from Bloomberg, and it said uh, it was a poll done by Nanos Research, and so it said fifty three percent of Canadians said their personal finances are worse now than eight years ago. Um, And for people that are aged 35 to 54, 61% said they're worse off. So, you know, you can obviously see that people are just falling further and further from eight
2: years ago. Yeah. from eight years.
1: That's. Oh, come on. Don't. And I I didn't write
0: the article. It's from Bloomberg, which I think (laughs) Bloomberg is a pretty, uh, you know, it basically just, I mean, the headline says most Canadians say their personal finances have worsened under Trudeau. And so this says poll shows cost of living is now the most important voting issue. So again, just to reemphasize, cost of living is considered the most important voting issue today. And I think that's why you have, you know, the conservatives are taking advantage of that. That 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 feel right, which is like that's why the the polls are doing what they're doing, because like that's what they're doubling down on. And so I have to like rich to your point. I mean, I think this kind of like emphasizes everything that we've talked about for the last couple of years is we just had a report from stats can showing uh, Canada's population uh, was estimated to grow by four hundred and thirty thousand people in the second quarter. So or was it Was it, a third quarter number. or second quarter? No, I think it was the third quarter. Anyways, the it was the highest population, growth in, in, highest population growth rate in any quarter since the second quarter of 1957. So by this account, you're going to grow your population this year in Canada by 1.3 million people. Yeah. Where are they going to live? Like and this this is like your this is why your rent and your shelter component of inflation right there it, it's sticky it's staying pretty Steve, elevated. How many new
2: units will be produced in Canada over so, the next twelve months? Yeah, so based on
0: uh, so there's there's two things you have housing starts which is like when you start the construction and then you have housing completions and so there are two different numbers you can argue which one you should use but like regardless of which one you use they're going to show you a pretty similar number which is we're going to probably have about two hundred and twenty thousand homes being built so again you're bringing in 1.3 million people you're building 220,000 homes
2: it just it so four work. people per home if you want to use that yeah or three yeah. three and a half maybe you break even but then you also have the current stock that's looking for inventory and in supply and i don't so, think it works guys what about uh, the education uh, side how many schools are being built Household composition. Oh my god. Household
0: composition is, is kind of average at about two and a half. So they say, like, you know, on average, based on you know the stats that we have is like you have two and a half people, you know, living in a home. So, you know, Keith, to your point, right? We're we're asking four people to live in a home right now. Uh so BMO economics team. Um, put up, put up, put up, you know, and Scotia's uh, chief economist Derek Holt put out some pretty scathing reports after those numbers came out. Which, again, for these mainstream economists at these big Canadian banks to come out, you know, anti-immigration or anti-what this population growth is 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 fairly unusual. Um, but BMO estimates that given the the current rate of population growth, Canada requires 170,000 170, new housing units. Every three months, so one hundred and seventy thousand every three months. Like I said, we're building about two hundred and twenty thousand for the year. So yeah. we're we're not even we're not even like this is gonna so, just if, at this rate you don't won't have a middle class by the end of the decade.
1: I just need I just need to correct you. So it's it, it. No one is anti-immigration. People are pro having a plan, <laughs> and totally. I think that that's that's ultimately the main criticism here. Um, and I think that there's two things I think it's 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 really I think that are really negative. so one I think it's going to actually stoke anti-immigration um, sentiment which I think is bad for Canada in the long run because again it's good to have immigrants but I think if you just basically put on the gas ignore anyone and criticize anyone who suggests that perhaps maybe we should slow it down to a little bit, I think that's gaslighting on a level. And I think it's going to really stoke anti-immigration. The other thing I think is really important to remember is like there are certain industries that absolutely benefit from this uh, increase in population. And it's, um, I tweeted about, about it earlier and it's these oligopolies. It's com- it's companies that benefit from basically an increase in nominal GDP. And, and you all know who they are. It's grocery stores, the banks, um, telecommunications companies, to a lesser degree maybe energy but these companies they don't necessarily improve on a, uh, when you uh, when you're purchasing stuff more on per capita basis because we know that the retail sales per capita is is declining and or flat they definitely definitely benefit when the aggregate number of people or the aggregate footfall increases and and it has a double sort of whammy because it' in my view, presses wages. Now there's people who crit- who argue against that view who say I'm wrong. I- I'm pretty sure that it does. um you know, and and that's that's a thing. So it's again, it's 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 who is this policy helping? Who is this policy hurting? and and i just think it's it's frankly outrageous and the irony of our all ironies is that it you know in 19 in, the, in 2000s bernie sanders who's a very much a left wing guy argued that these sort of open border uh, mass immigration policies designed for by and catered to um, The Koch brothers. And, and if you're not familiar with the Koch brothers, they're like a hyper right wing um, group of billionaires in the United States. And it just it's like the irony is, it just drips with irony. I, I don't know what else to say about it other than just fry, basically. Well, just to give you like a little bit of
0: food for thought, as I put this tweet out, right? I said, hey, listen, like this is nuts, you know, 1.3 million people, 220,000 homes, you know, and this isn't the first year it's happened either. And I had this like Vancouver city councilor guy. He like replies back to my tweet and he goes, I think your, your numbers are off. You know, we're, we're at, you know, four hundred and sixty five thousand people. I said, well, Mike, you're <laughs> he, he didn't even know the own numbers. I was like, this is the guy, this is a guy that is responsible for approving new housing, new housing supply. This is the guy that is responsible for approving new housing. He doesn't
2: even know the numbers that are coming in. But he also called us three babbling dipshits (laughs) and dumb turds. Yeah. I mean,
0: honestly, though, I was like, I was, I said to him, I says, you know, respectfully, I'm a little bit concerned that as a policymaker, you don't know your own numbers um, because you're missing by a wide margin. Of course, he was referring to, I think he was getting confused, the net growth of the country, which is 1.3 million people. So minus all your births, your deaths, whatever, 1.3 million people is what we added, uh, and, you know, he's looking at permanent resident targets, which are set by the federal government. But as we know, that most of the growth is not coming from permanent residents. It's coming from non-permanent residents, a.k.a. international migration. People coming here and student visas and everything uh, and then ultimately staying. So anyways, that's the I'm, long. I'm, just,
2: I'm shocked, though, Steve, that this has not become priority number one at both the federal and provincial levels. For governments, because it is a significant driver and igniter of of so many problems, like aggregate inflation that's happening. You know the housing problem. I started the day for healthcare. We Canada. I, I don't know if this was for a specific province or just in general, but the uh, the average or median wait time at ERs is at the highest it's ever been recorded in Canadian history. Again, we're, we're considered to have one of the top healthcare systems in the world, and it's taken longer and longer than ever just to to, to see someone. I mean, and the root all of this, you know, everything's about supply and demand. So again, anyone listening to this that may be at the provincial or federal level, you know, we, we'd love for you to come on and explain to us how it's gotten to this point. It was kind of irrelevant because you can't fix the past, but what is your plan going forward? Because everything is being affected by this. You know,
0: so I asked the uh, I actually asked the mayor of Vancouver about this maybe a couple months ago and I said, you know, hey, can I, you know we're at this like housing event And I said, you know what's your conversations been like at the federal level? You know you're obviously engaging a lot with the you know different levels of government to try to fix this housing crisis. And I said, did you ever ask them or is there any been dialogue about the levels of population growth you know uh, is is that of concern? And you know of course his answer was the, the standard you know, policymaker response oh no 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 we need immigration immigration's good like we just, we just need to build more housing and I was like that's not the point I'm making the point is like you're adding 1.3 million people or even like whatever you call it let's call it a million people you don't have nobody has the ability to build housing to accommodate that it's you can't just ramp up new housing starts you can't get that many skilled trades it just can't. It just, it can't be done. You can, I don't care how much you can rezone all of BC. You can rezone all of Canada to build, you know, multiplexes. Good luck. You're going to be capped out. And so it's just not sustainable. And everybody's sort of skirts around. Oh, I don't want to be looked at. It was like anti-immigration. So the Nobody... irony here. Oh, sorry. Go, is, go yeah. ahead. Sorry. So
2: the, at the bank of Canada, the, uh, the, the security guards and security personnel have, have gone on strike. They need right. more money because the cost of living has gone up for you know housing and, and food and, and everything.
0: Hey, at least they got tampons rich, in the men's bathroom.
1: Shoot. Oh, boy. Oh, Shoot. dear. Oh, oh dear. This the you?
0: problem. We got record. We got a housing crisis. So we've got the worst inflation in 40, 50 years. The cost of living issue is magnifying. Uh, you know, food bank are lining up around the corner and our, are our priorities
1: have? aren't straight what's say. going on
0: with the priorities here we're talking about mandating evs is that that like that's just gonna again we talked about at the beginning of the show is just who's it hurt the most it's people on the fringes and i don't know it's just it's unbelievable i don't know who's running economic policy in this country or what the dialogue is like behind closed doors but man this is just a total cluster
1: um, I just wanted to point. I actually couldn't hear you guys because for some reason it cut out. But I think it's important to like highlight that we're not the only ones with these views. And according so Bank of Canada actually published out, published a demographic demand um sort of forecast not forecast because the data is sort of backward looking, but sort of demographic demand, and they compared that to the housing starts and which we'll share on on a pod. and it'll it'll show you sort of the massive gap opening. um and with no real, impetus to, 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 close that gap. Um, yeah, anyways, um, it's, it's kind of sad and frustrating, I would say.
0: So we'll get more, I guess, of a view tomorrow. We're recording this on Thursday. So if you're listening to this, go ahead and look at Canada's, uh, GDP numbers, which are coming out here on Friday. Um, that will give us a decent indicator of how Canada's doing, how the economy is doing. Again, I would encourage people to look on a real per capita basis, that note that we've been uh, declining for five consecutive quarters and that nature. So we'll see what the numbers look like. Obviously that's going to give the Bank of Canada more clues as to what their next move is going to be. Um, Keith, I don't know if you have any comments on that. One of the things I don't, we, we're kind of running short on time here, but I am kind of curious your thoughts on what's happening in financial markets right now as we head into you know Christmas and the new year. You know, it typically can be a little bit more of a volatile time, but there's this view out there from a guy like Jim Bianco, who I have a lot of respect for. He's really big on Twitter. He's been very, very accurate throughout the last couple of years during the pandemic of saying, hey, listen, like we're in this new economy now where the way we sort of measured the old economy, it's changed because, you know, people are now working from home. COVID just changed, changed life for a lot of people and in, in, in how the economy is running. And so he's of the view that, you know, markets right now, the Fed is kind of forecasting their dot plots, three cuts. Markets are pricing for six cuts. And he's of the view that, like, we're going to get this no landing, no rate hikes or no rate cuts, sorry, because he thinks we're actually in this, like, no landing scenario where, like, the economy in the U.S. at least is doing totally fine. And everybody's so bearish and looking for the recession. And he's of the view that things are just going to kind of just t- take off and they're not going to be bad. And And so I'm kind of curious to hear your opinion on that, because I think it's a pretty alternative view to what we're hearing uh, in general, which is everyone's, like I said, waiting for the recession, waiting for the rate cuts. And, and are, are they
2: coming? I don't know. So we have two views, right? So you have that view by Jim. You know, is no landing, which, by the way, means you know economic growth continues to do really well. Now, that's just for the U.S. Everywhere else around the world, you know, data is continues to get a bit sluggish, including in Canada. We we had a, a bit of a negative payroll print this morning that we won't go into a lot of detail with, but it was it was a big number. And then you have the other view, which is that hey, we're going to hit a, a pretty hard landing, which means a, a deep recession coming up, and this is you know based on the U.S. So those are two exact opposite expectations, and so then you look at the market right now. So the bond market is telling you, "Yeah, we're going to get a pretty big recession coming up. It's it's going to go." Do you hear that,
1: Rich? Nope.
2: Nobody heard it. Microphone, microphone's his hands, everybody. too
1: good. That's amazing. I think the microphone just like uh, the muted you really automatically. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Let's try it again. No, nope, can't hear it. No, nope. so amazing. Anyways, this, that's, da- that's, this babbling that's- turd
2: is clapping his hands right now. <laughs> you three clowns, something <laughs> like that. Uh, okay, yeah. So the bond market is though indicating that you know we're going to hit some pretty bad times. The stock market right now is telling you the exact opposite. You know, it's nineteen ninety nine again. And so one of these guys is is wrong. One of the, one of these markets is wrong. So if we do not hit a recession. And, you know, Jim is correct. You know, the, the bond market is going to, you know, using the 10 or 30 year, the bond market is probably going to decline, you know, 20, 40% over the next 15 months. Right. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. If the bond market is right, then, you know, equity should be coming off, you know, really hard. So at, at the end of the year, you you know, liquidity, you know, is less. You can get a lot of big capital movements that can really shift the markets um but you know I I wouldn't hold a what what's been happening in the last week with markets uh, certainly don't use that to forecast what's going to happen now in 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 you know in 24 because when when you know January 2nd rolls around uh you know then all of a sudden you're going to figure out okay what what's going on here but it, but again Steve like it's such a great observation you're making you have this this enormous d- division in or separation in views. Where's the market going to go? You don't have this small leeway one direction or the other. And, uh, you know, be be careful out there, kids. Rich, do you have any thoughts?
1: Yeah, I think it's, I think, I mean, Keith did a really great, um, great, you know, summarizing it. I think maybe just sort of what might be the driver of growth going forward in the US, for example, is sort of the resurgence in the housing market. We've talked about that, um, and also sort of the stickiness in CPI. So, do really s- a,
0: yeah, go ahead. I go was, ahead. No, do you have a resurgence in U.S. housing right now? I think I was looking at like resale, like no resale. I mean, home, the, home sales the, are at like lowest since 2010.
1: So it's fair, to, it's fair to push back on that, but I think it's also important to note that mortgage rates, remember long mortgage rates in the US are 30 year mortgage rates. So that, that number has fallen by 1% over the last, I don't know, it feels like a week, but it's probably been more like a month or so or two months. Um, and you have sort of the rate of change in private um gross fixed capital formation and residential. That's now positive. It peaked in June of 2022. It bottomed, uh, yeah, that's right, peaked in June, 2022. It bottomed in June of 2023, and now is starting to rise again. So the year on year change is positive. If you look at a level terms is positive. Consumer confidence has bounced over the last three months. We're moving in the right direction. Personal consumption expenditure in real terms is 2.2%. Not fantastic, but certainly not bad. You're having things like the NFIB, non farm, um, non farm pay, uh, National Federation of Independent Businesses, so small business surveys. Their compensation plans have actually reaccelerated. You have wage growth in America that's five percent. And that's, who knows if that follows the compensation plans of the NFIB back higher, people feel good. Then there's the wealth effect of the stock market. I think I just saw something in the Daily Shot the other day that said more people as a percentage of total Americans own the equity market than ever before. So, again, I, I, I'm, that's the case I'm making for sort of the Bianco argument. Um, I'm not in that view. But I can sure as hell defend it because I think that's what being a good strategist is all about, trying to put yourself in a different perspective. But so, yeah, I think that you. if but that's why, in a sense, it's, it's sort of, you, you know, be careful what you wish for, I would say, to the Biancos of the world, because if, if you do get that positive impetus from the economy, all those cuts are going to get priced right out and all these long duration assets that did super, super well. Over the last little while, are going to, in my view, massively retrench because we don't have the earnings growth. So that's sort of that would be the one, yeah. so one, one thing I like to try
2: that. to rec- Yeah, one thing I like to try to reconcile here is you know, we had Powell with his very dovish uh, presser and, and Fed meeting from was it last week or a week before? And people are forgetting two weeks before that, he was incredibly hawkish. So and again, this is not getting a lot of conversation out there, but he he did a complete 180 over a two week period where there was no data coming out to suggest one thing or the other and so again again, that tells me that that something is a, a bit odd out there in the marketplace, and by him talking that way, you know it's effectively he cut rates without cutting rates. Right. when you get a you know you, you get a uh you know easing and in and, and credit conditions and and stuff like that. so uh you know it always feels great when uh you know there's a risk on taking place in in markets because hey it feels good um but again it, this has been an odd you know couple of like six weeks in the last two weeks I and mean, we, we'll see where we go here coming up I think everyone just said everyone for the GDP number coming out uh tomorrow for us but today for everyone who, who's listening. Hey, Rich. The, that's uh, right. <laughs> yeah, thanks. The uh the expectation for year over year is one percent. So like the number and for the month over month is 0. 0.2. So again, like the, the number tomorrow, it, it it should be okay. So we will see where we go with it. And um, you know, there we go, guys. There she was. Should be okay, okay when
0: you have a million people coming in, pushing that number up. But uh <clears throat> anyways, I think that's a good place to leave it. Uh, Merry Christmas uh to everyone listening to the show. Hopefully you guys have a good holidays. And you know, we won't we won't be skipping a beat. We'll be back next week uh to entertain you throughout the holidays.
2: But uh you guys as well, Keith, Rich.
1: Yeah, Merry Christmas, boys.
2: Merry Christmas, everyone. Happy holidays. See you next time. See you later, you babbling turds. <laughs>